Good morning. In literature, cities often play a fascinating role in representing grand concepts or grand realities. I think of classic works you may have come across in school, like A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens, which highlights two cities, London and Paris, during the time of the French Revolution. Uh, another is Augustine's City of God, which examines the city of man as contrasted with the city of God. Uh, one with which I hope that you are familiar is John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, in which uh, he writes about a believer named Christian and his journey from the place where his citizenship once lay, the city of destruction, and his journey to his new home, to his new destination, the celestial city. And if you're a Christian, then you are also sharing in that same transfer of citizenship from the city of destruction to the celestial city and also sharing as a fellow traveler from the one to the other. Well, the Bible also uses cities to represent larger realities. We can think of Babylon or Sodom and Gomorrah and these historical places that have historical significance but also take on a larger significance. And probably the clearest example of this in the Bible is the city of Jerusalem, which is often spoken of as Mount Zion, the holy city where God's name dwelt, where his temple stood, where the throne of David's kingdom was established. And in a similar way, Jerusalem, uh, it once represented the glory and presence of God dwelling with man and the strength and the majesty of David's kingdom. And, and like so many other physical realities that point to a greater reality, uh, such as uh, I, I think of the mercy seat, I think of the tabernacle, I think of the Passover lamb, these physical realities, but they're not the full thing in themselves. They point to something greater. They're pointing us to the fulfillment, the fullness. Just like those, even Jerusalem herself can be understood as a type foreshadowing a greater reality to come, a new city that, and that's the, uh, the image that I hope that we can grab onto today as we uh, look together to Nehemiah chapter 3. So join me there in your copy of God's trustworthy and true word, the Holy Bible. Nehemiah chapter 3. Now, if you've not been with us, we're studying this divine revelation and this divine record of God at work in history to exalt his own supremacy and to redeem a people for the sake of his great name. And he did this through ordinary days in history. And this portion of this real life historical record in the book of Nehemiah, this real life record of God's faithfulness. His faithfulness to his covenant promises. Uh, this took place under the reign of a Persian king named Artaxerxes I in the 5th century BC. Uh, a century earlier from the time frame of our text, Jerusalem had been destroyed. God's judgment on idolatrous Judah by the hands of Babylon 
razed the city to the ground. Stones are just what used to be stone structures are now just heaps of ruin. What used to be strong gates are just burnt uh, embers that remain. Raised it to the ground. And several generations later, the carnage still remained. And so Nehemiah, while serving as cupbearer to the Persian king Artaxerxes, he hears of the shameful and the ruinous condition of Judah, and that led him to humble, repentant prayer and to bold requests of the king to allow uh, both his return and to supply his return to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And we've covered that type of stuff in chapters 1 and 2. So after obtaining the permissions and the provisions of the king in chapter 1, Nehemiah has now made his way to Jerusalem and surveyed the rubble of the city wall and encouraged the people of Judah to join him in rebuilding the city which the Lord, uh, the city in which the Lord had made his name to dwell, the city of Jerusalem. That's chapter 2. Opposition to this rebuilding project's already arisen, and uh, what we what we see is that in the face of that, there's confidence in God's help, and Nehemiah and the other people there in Judah have gathered their tools to rise up and to build. Now, last week at the close of our time in chapter two, John left us with something. Uh, he he left a series of concluding applications and one of them I think is especially helpful to aid us today in our study. So to quote the the eminent John McCartney, he said, just like Nehemiah was called to build the walls of Jerusalem, we too are invited to a grand building project to participate in building the church and growing the kingdom of God. So there's a connection being made there between the physical rebuilding of a of an ancient city and another building project a bigger building project and so I want what I want us to see is that same link between the brick and mortar city of Jerusalem that Nehemiah built and another city another city by the same name which we have connection to as believers so we have some careful study ahead of us today and uh, we have some dots to connect as we move across the pages of Scripture, and for that we need the Holy Spirit's help so we don't go astray. So before we begin and read, let's ask for His help in prayer. Our great God, as we've just sung a moment ago, it's our prayer that You would speak, O Lord, as we come to You to receive the food of your holy word. Speak, Lord, for your servants here. And we pray, Lord, Holy Spirit, that you would be our teacher, that you would strengthen my frailties, that you would open our minds to see great and wonderful things in your law. And it's in Jesus' name and for his glory that we pray. Amen. Let's give our attention now to Nehemiah chapter 3, and we'll read the whole chapter. These are the very words of God. Then Elisha the high priest rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors 
They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zacher the son of Emery built. The sons of Hassaniah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Bereki, son of uh, Meshzabel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Baana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. Joadah the son of Paseah, and Meshulam the son of Besadiah repaired the gate of Yeshana. They laid its beams, and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Melathiah the Gibeonite, and Jadon the Moronathite, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel the son of Harhiah, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Haramoth, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabniah repaired. Malchijah, the son of Haram, and Hashab, the son of Pahath Moab, repaired another section, and the tower of the ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Heloash, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. Hanan and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Malchijah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hakaram, repaired the dung gate. He repaired it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, the son of Kohoaz, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He repaired it and covered it, and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shelah, of the king's garden, as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of half the district of Beth-Zur, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool, and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired. Rehum, the son of Bani, Next to him, Hashabiah, ruler of half the district of Keilah, repaired for his district. After him, their brothers repaired, Bavai, the son of Henadab, ruler of half the district of Keilah. Next to him, Ezer, the son of Yeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section opposite the, uh, the ascent to the armory at the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Elisha the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Elisha to the end of the house of Elisha. After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area, repaired. 
After them, Benjamin and Hashab repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Maaseiah, son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. After him, Benui, the son of Hinadab, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. Palal, the son of Uzziah, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Pediah, the son of Parosh, and the temple servants living on Ophel repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the, house, the horse gate, the priest repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Emmer, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shilamai, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zalaph, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. And after him, Malchijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants opposite the muster gate and to the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. And thanks be to God for his word, every word of it. Whew. What do you do with a passage like this? Uh, when I realized that my assignment was to preach chapter 3, I thought to myself, oh boy, this is going to be tough. However, I was quickly reminded that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. I was reminded that the whole Bible is a book about God and that every word reveals his glory, even these. I was reminded that our Lord Jesus taught plainly that all scripture testifies about him. So in truth, this long list of names and gates and doors and bolts and bars and sections of stone wall before us today helped to show us the wonder of our God. And may his spirit help us to see it because we need his help to see it. Well then, how do we get started in a passage like this? I would say the same thing that we, the same way that we start any passage. We seek to understand it in its context. And we've covered the immediate context of the passage a few moments ago. And there's another aspect of studying the context of a biblical passage that I think will prove helpful for us today. And that aspect is sometimes called the canonical context. That is to say, how does this passage fit in the overall testimony of Scripture? How does this passage connect to the larger story of the Bible, that grand story, that grand narrative of redemption? Where does Nehemiah 3 fit in to the big picture? And so if you will, picture in your minds a Bible, and above the Bible, picture like a multi-strand rope that spans the whole story. This represents the overarching grand narrative of the Bible. 
and extending out of this, this multi-strand rope are many, many threads that go down and connect to different parts of the scriptures. So many threads that touch all of the scriptures come together to make the big overarching story. And one of those threads connects in Nehemiah 3. And I pray with God's help that we can study this chapter and then trace that, that thread up into the larger story. Trace how it connects to that overarching grand narrative of the Bible. So this is what I hope to demonstrate in this sermon. It's this right here. That our text today is one piece of the larger story of redemption. And in seeing Nehemiah, the faithful builder of the earthly Jerusalem, that our minds and our affections can be directed to the greater builder of the heavenly new Jerusalem, the Lord Jesus. Looking at Nehemiah, the lesser builder, and being able to be directed to the greater builder. And so we'll get there first by spending some time examining the details of chapter 3. We've got to deal with the text in front of us. And second, by zooming out and following this theme, this thread, or this theme of building the city of Jerusalem, and follow that across the pages of the scriptures in order to discover another builder who's building another city by the same name. So come along with me as we explore the tale of two builders. I hope that you're excited, because I am. And the first of two headings today is this. Nehemiah, the builder of Jerusalem. And we'll cover the whole chapter under this heading. Nehemiah, the builder of Jerusalem. So notice first the structure of the chapter. So according to the commentators, this chapter in the Hebrew text, it divides into two sections or into two paragraphs, if you will. And we can see the divisions um, in our English translations of how Nehemiah moves through this list of builders. And I'll show that to you in just a second. So uh, if you have a study Bible, it would help to be able to look at a map of the city as we go through the text so you can see how Nehemiah is moving along. But if you don't have one with you, uh, if you'll picture in your mind a triangle, like a narrow triangle that's upside down, so the, the base is at the top, the horizontal base is at the top, and then it comes down to a point in the south. Well, Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day was shaped like that. I think Carl actually posted a picture in our uh, Facebook group, if you want to go back and find that. Uh, not during the sermon, of course. Don't scroll Facebook, but uh, that is helpful. Okay, so picture in your mind that upside-down triangle with a, the base at the top, the point at the south end there. And as the chapter progresses what Nehemiah does is he starts in the northeast corner and he moves across uh, westward and then goes down the westward side of the city to the southern point and then back up again the eastern side of the city back to where he began he's moving in a counterclockwise fashion very orderly around the city and uh, the way that he begins in verses 1 through 15 as he moves along the northern and western stretches of the wall, he says that somebody built, and next to him, or and next to them, such and such repaired, and next to him, such and such repaired. And that's our cue, that, that first uh, half of the 
chapter that he's moving in that direction towards the south. And once he reaches the southern tip of the city, he begins to make his way northward again along the eastern wall of the city. In verses 16 to 32, he writes, And after him, such and such repaired. And after him, such and such repaired. It's almost as if Nehemiah is standing at the southern tip, and he's beholding this, and he's watching as he's moving his eyes all the way down to himself and then back up again to where it began. The whole journey, it starts and ends at the Sheep Gate near the northeastern point of the city. You can see that in verse 1 and then again in 32, beginning and ending at the Sheep Gate. And there are multiple sections of the work going on. And over 40 teams or units or families spread out along the pathway uh, accomplishing this building project. Now, according to today's American city standards, uh, Nehemiah's Jerusalem was not very big at all. Uh, the, the exact boundaries are debated, and, and some of it has been found by archaeology, but the sources that I read estimated that the city covered about 160 acres total, or about 0.25 square miles. Just to give a frame of reference, Monroe is just over 21,000 acres, or just under 33 square miles. And so the, the city of Jerusalem in that day compared to Monroe in our day is a very, very small place. Uh, portions of Nehemiah's wall have been discovered by archaeologist Kathleen Kenyon in the 60s. And those portions that have been discovered were eight feet thick. So uh, an eight-foot thick stone wall that's approximately 15 or 20 feet high, enclosing 160 acres, there's still a whole lot of stone to move, a whole lot to stack. This was no honeydew chore list. This was no weekend project. It took a lot of dedication, a lot of sweat, a lot of elbow grease from a lot of people to accomplish. As we'll learn later in the chapter, they accomplish it in a pretty amazing, amazingly short amount of time. So that's the layout of the passage. Now notice second, four observations from it. So what is this, uh, this record of construction workers and their assignments really have to do with anything? Well, I dare say that we could spend the rest of the afternoon pondering this and making biblical connections. Remember we said what, uh, way back when we started our Ezra portion of this study that the author of Ezra Nehemiah expects you to know your Bible. And if you do, then you see connections all over the place, way more than we can touch today. So for now, I want to mention a few condensed observations before we try to move on to that big picture. First, Observation: Notice the beauty of this diverse crew. I wonder if you picked up on how Nehemiah includes extra details about these builders as he moves along. Details like uh, their vocations, for example. We have priests in verse 1, Levites in verse 17, goldsmiths in verses 8 and 31, merchants in verse 32, perfumers in verse 8. He also includes uh, their different home places, like Jericho in verse 2, Gibeon in verse 7, and Zenoa in verse 13, among others that are mentioned. He also shows that some of these folks were government officials, 
from different districts there in verses 14 to 16. And he even makes a point to mention that the ladies as well as the men had put their hands to the work there in verse 12. So God's covenant people from various backgrounds were united under one banner for one cause, namely the honor of the Lord and the good of his people. Remember how he charged them to, to take up their tools and get to the work there at the end of chapter 2. It was for the, the honor of the Lord and for the good of the people. Their shame would be removed, that they would have the protections of a wall. That sounds an awful lot like a New Testament description of the church, the body of Christ. We might look at 1 Corinthians 12 or Ephesians 4, or even uh, it sounds a whole lot like that multi-ethnic, multilingual uh, multitude worshiping the Lamb around His throne in Revelation 5. The diversity of God's people working together for the glory of God and the good of His people. So give glory to God alone who can bring this kind of unity across boundaries. Second observation, uh, in these first three chapters already, Nehemiah has made much of God and much of God's people, but not himself. Not even listing himself among the workers in chapter 3. There is a Nehemiah, but it's not the same Nehemiah that we are, uh, who's writing this portion of the, of the book. And now we know from earlier chapters and especially later chapters that Nehemiah himself does roll up his sleeves and he gets to work like the rest and he's right in the middle of it and he's directing it, he's making decisions, he's right in the midst of it. But in this chapter, you don't see him at all. Very unlike Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, verse 30, who, who boastfully looked out across Babylon. Do you remember this? He looked out across Babylon and he said, Behold, Babylon, and that I've built for the glory of my name, and, and how the Lord immediately humbled him. Unlike that, Nehemiah built for the glory of God and the good of God's people, not even mentioning himself among the ranks of the others. That causes my mind to go to the New Testament again. Places like Philippians 2, verse 3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And that chapter continues to give that ultimate example of this. Philippians 2, 5 through 8, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So who knew the list of construction details can model for us the character of Jesus? Observation three. Notice the nature of this work. It's more going on here than perhaps a construction site you might have passed on the way to church this morning. Nehemiah saw this crumbled down wall as a neon sign highlighting the sins of the people and their shame and of God's covenant faithfulness to keep uh, his promised judgments on their unfaithfulness. We saw all of this in chapter 1 and chapter 2. 
Uh, he saw this also as a fulfillment of God's prof prophesied promises uh, in the words of Jeremiah in chapter 35, I'm sorry, 25 and 29. Jeremiah promised, or the Lord promised through Jeremiah, that he would restore the people to the land, a promise for which God had been making provision. Chapter 1, verse 8, chapter 2, verse 18. So completing the work was a matter of faith in God to fulfill his promises. It was also a matter of faithfulness to God on, their, on the people's behalf, their faithfulness to God. And I think that's why Nehemiah begins in verse 1 of our chapter by pointing out who it is that led forth in the work. It was spearheaded by the high priest and the other priests along with him. And their starting point was the sheep gate, which was part of the temple complex. According to Derek Thomas, this is where the sacrifices would be brought into the temple to be offered in the worship of God. So the high priest leads forth in the effort. The effort begins on holy ground, as, as it were, in the temple complex at the sheep gate where the sacrifices come in for the worship of God. And then verse 1 also tells us that they consecrate the work. They consecrate the wall, the gate, the doors, the towers, setting them apart as holy to God. So the people in this chapter model for us reliance on God in obedient, living, active faith. And then finally, a, a fourth observation. There's an unspoken reality underlying all this building project, which is hinted at indirectly, but not named directly. It's hinted at uh, in the way that different areas of the city are mentioned. The Sheep Gate, the East Gate, the Muster Gate, the Tower of the Hundred. Get that map and see where these things are. They're around the north and eastern part of the city, that, that point of the triangle, and they border the temple, the dwelling place of God. You got the priests there, you got all the gates there, all these connections to the worship of God, and geographically, they're right there, building around the temple. And the temple representing God's dwelling with his people. So yes, the city needed a wall for protection. But the wall was being built around the center. It was being built around the heart of the people, of the heart of the city, and the heart of the worship of the one true God. The temple itself. The tangible expression of God's nearness. God's dwelling place with his people. So let's bring all of this together. What we're seeing happening in chapter 3 is Nehemiah, a strong and humble servant of God, showing concern for the glory of God and the good of God's people, leading the people to build the city of Jerusalem, in which stood the Lord's temple, the symbol of God dwelling with his people. And here's where we grab hold of that thread that I mentioned, and trace it to the bigger story. Trace it to the, the overarching message of the Bible. It's a, it's a theme that we're going to follow, this theme of the city of Jerusalem, and connect the dots from Nehemiah chapter 3 to that bigger story. And we're going to find, as we connect the dots, that we're going to meet another builder of another city by the same name.
So our second heading for our study this morning, Jesus, the greater builder of the new Jerusalem. Notice first, we'll take that title of that heading and divide it in half. The greater builder, and then we'll look at the new Jerusalem. So notice first under here, the greater builder. So I think similarly to how Scripture uses David to point to the greater David and how it uses Adam to point to the greater second Adam, and we could go on down the list of, of ways that the Scriptures do this even with other examples, I think that we can also have our thoughts directed from the builder, Nehemiah, to the greater builder, the Lord Jesus. Now, Jesus even called himself a builder once. Do you remember it? It was in reply to G, uh, Peter's great confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, that Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And then later, this same, same Peter would write to Christian believers in 1 Peter 2, verse 4 and 5, when he said this, As you come to him, that is, come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. So the Lord Jesus Christ is the greater builder and he's building his church, brick by brick, as it were, with living stones, those who have come to him in repentance and faith. Lesser builder, Nehemiah, greater builder, Jesus. But there are more dots to connect, so let's keep, keep going. Keep following me here and noticing, second then, the new Jerusalem. Here's where things get really cool. In the book of Hebrews... While recounting the faith of Old Testament saints who never saw with their physical eyes the fulfillment of God's promises, the book of Hebrews tells us that they look forward by faith to a future hope described as a city built by God. Let's go look at it. Hebrews chapter 11. Turn there with me, please. Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to look at a few places as we move along. Hebrews chapter 11. And let's uh, read starting in verse 8. Hebrews 11, 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham, by faith, looking forward to the city that God is building. Now, let's keep connecting dots. Turn over a page to chapter 12, Hebrews 12, verse 18 and 19. Speaking to those who come to Christ uh, and through faith, 
He says in Hebrews 12, 18 and 19, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, and darkness, and gloom, and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, or namely, Sinai. For they could not endure the order uh, that was given. And now let's look at verse 22. So you have not come to what may be touched, Rather, verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. That word assembly is the same word that we translate church. You've come to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God the assembly of uh, the firstborn. Now look at chapter 13, verse 12. Tracing these dots, connecting the dots. Chapter 13, verse 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured for... Here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So by faith, the patriarchs awaited a city to come whose designer and builder is God. And in coming to Jesus, we have not come to what may be touched, the old covenant Sinai or a brick and mortar city in Judea. Our hope is not in this world where we have no lasting city. Rather, through faith in Christ Jesus, we have indeed come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city whose designer and builder is God. We're making these connections. We're seeing the lesser builder building an ancient city and being directed to see the greater builder who's building the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. Now, we still have a, another dot or two to connect to tie the bow. So turn with me in Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21. And keep in mind what we just read in Hebrews in the city that they longed for. Revelation 21, we'll look at verse uh, 1 and following. The Apostle John, after seeing the great white throne of judgment, said, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Take notice of that language. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Now skim down to verse 9. 
Then came one of the angels, the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Now, who is that? Who's the bride of the Lamb, the bride of Christ? That's the church. And what does he show him in the next verse? And he carried me away to the Spirit, to a great high mountain, and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. That new Jerusalem. What is that? That's the bride of Christ. That's the glorified church. Having the glory of God, verse 11, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, reminiscent of Nehemiah. And all the gates, are at, and at the gates, the 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And on the east, three gates. And on the north, three gates. The south, three gates. On the west, three gates. And all the wall of the city had 12 foundations. Abraham looked forward to a city with foundations whose builder and designer was God. And there, uh, and on them, there were 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. This city with foundations that Abraham awaited is the heavenly Jerusalem, is the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, is the bride of Christ, is the glorified church which Jesus is building with living stones, wherein every tear will be wiped away, and death is no more, along with all mourning and crying and pain is gone. Yes, but you know what? It still gets better. 20, Revelation 21, verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. So unlike the old earthly city in the new Jerusalem, there's no temple with courts and walls and restrictions and a veil to separate the holy God from sinful people. No, in the new Jerusalem, sin and its many curses are wiped away, and we dwell with God in unhindered fellowship. That's the Jerusalem that we long for. That's the one that we want to see, not the oft-rebuilt yet still crumbling city that's currently in war. That's no longer the dwelling place of God. That, there's a new one. There's a better one, the new Jerusalem. Now, there's only one chapter left in the Bible, so can you handle just one little bit more? Uh, chapter 22, verse 3 through 5, still speaking about this city, this glorified church, this new Jerusalem, the dwelling place of God. Revelation 22, 3 through 5. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. 
they will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. There will be no need for light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. Verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. And John replies, and I, I would uh, join in, and I'm sure you would join in with this reply as he says, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Well, we're out of pages in the Bible now, so we better tie the bow. Let's bring it all back together. From Nehemiah chapter 3, we see the builder, Nehemiah, a strong and humble servant of God, showing concern for the glory of God and the good of God's people by leading the people to build the city of Jerusalem, in which stood the Lord's temple, the symbol of God dwelling with his people. And in so doing, we find a connection to the big story, to the grand story of redemption. And we're moved by seeing the lesser builder of the lesser city to behold and to uh, worship and to magnify the greater builder, the Lord Jesus, who supremely magnifies the glory of God and secures the eternal good of God's people. He is building his church, the bride of Christ, with living stones into a glorified heavenly city, Jerusalem, where God dwells with his glorified people, no longer separated into a closed temple behind a veil, but dwells with his people face to face in radiant glory. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. As the song sing, uh, puts it, Lord, and maybe we're moved to sing, we shall behold him face to face in all of his glory, our Savior and Lord. I pray, Lord, help us to, to, to see the greatness of what's here in front of us. That our hopes would be, would be strengthened and renewed. That our faith would be fortified. That our um, expectations for the glories to come would be an encouragement. And that we would be in awe of Jesus Christ who makes it all a reality. In his name we pray. Amen.